All right, turn to Zechariah chapter 9. We will not have a quiz tonight. I know that disappoints you, but everybody gets 100. So there you go. Uh, so there you go. Everybody has a perfect score tonight. So we will not have, a, we have a lot of material to get through tonight. And so we will skip the, uh, the quiz and pick back th- uh, that back up next week. So we've made it to chapter 9 tonight. And there is a big difference between chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah. So now we're, we're getting into the second half of, of the book of Zechariah. And we're going to see in a moment how there's such a big difference between the first eight chapters and then chapters 9 through 14. We're going to talk about why some people believe maybe Zechariah didn't write the second half. Now, I believe he did, but there's a lot of critics that say, yeah, I don't know that he did because it is totally different and it's a totally different time frame. So, first of all, letter A on your outline, let's look at the storyline changes. You turn from chapter 8, we finished chapter 8 last week, chapter 9 tonight. As you turn from chapter 8 to chapter 9, everything changes. The temple is completed. Remember chapter 8, God's encouraging them, you need to keep going. You need to keep back, to start back rebuilding the temple again. You've been stopped for 18 years. You need to get back building again. So by the time we get to chapter 9, not only have they started building again, they finished it. So turning from chapter 8 to chapter 9, you go forward about 150 years. 150 years in one chapter. So even the casual reader of Zechariah will notice there's a stark difference between chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters 9 through 14. So when chapter 8 ends, we ended last Wednesday night, two sermons, remember? He preached chapter, verses 1 to 17 was sermon number 1, verses 18 to 23, sermon number 2, we looked at that last Wednesday night. Chapter 9 opens and we fast forward, time travel, 150 years. Temple's completed. One of the phrases in chapter 9, we'll look at next week, is chapter 9, verse 13, that's kind of odd, is it says in verse 13, uh, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I've made Ephraim as the arrow, I will stir, stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Greece wasn't a nation. Wait a minute. It was called something different. It wasn't Greece for years later. In fact, it was a country, we're about 520 B.C. here now. It was in Greece then. It was, they were called Ionians. They go all the way back to Egypt. They were either used as mercenaries, the Egyptian army did, called the Ionians. That was Greece. They call themselves the, the Hellenes. In fact, today, even those residents of Greece don't call themselves Greeks. Many of them call themselves Hellenes because, uh, Hel- of course, Hellenism was the Greek culture. The, from the mythical god Helen. That's where they came from. So they weren't even called Greeks. So why on earth would he say Greece in verse 13? So things like that you're looking at, you go, it's a totally different time period than what we looked at in verses, chapters 1 through 8. So we get to 9. The mood of the book changes. The style of the book changes. The outlook of the book changes. 
In fact, there's a difference in literary style. Now it's poetic rather than narrative. How many in your, in your Bible, starting in verse 9, it's, it's like written in poem form? Mine is that way, quite a few of them. And it's all narrative before that, and now it's like poetic style. That's because 9 through 14 really looks like more like the Psalms. It, it really resembles the Psalms more than it does a prophet. And so it changes drastically. For eight chapters, we have heard, heard nothing from God but hope. And encouragement and comfort, those people that came back from the land of, of Babylon that came and they're trying to rebuild, he's encouraging them hope and comfort and, and, and encouraging them. And then you open chapter 9 and there's war and destruction and God's bringing judgment. You're going, man, that changed all of a sudden. So you can see that it changes drastically. Chapters 9 through 14 are much more cryptic than we've been reading so far. Much more cosmic, having illusions with no interpretations. Now, the centerpiece of 9 through 14 is the Messiah is going to appear. So, we're going to be talking more about Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus to come in chapters 9 through 14. In fact, 9 through 14 is uh, quoting, is the most quoted portion of Zechariah in chapters 9 through 14. So, we're going to talk more about the Messiah. Now, first of all, before we get there, let's just kind of look a little more closely at, at the chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 14. Let's look, first of all, there's some similarities between the two, not many of them, but both sections talk about Jerusalem, try to bring comfort to Jerusalem. Uh, both sections emphasize all nations, not just Israel. Both sections talk about God cleansing His people and making them who He wants them to be. But chapters 9 through 14 seems to follow up chapters 1 through 8 and go 100 years, 150 years further. Now let's look at some of the differences between the two. First of all, chapter 9 verse 1, we're going to read it in a moment, opens up by saying, The oracle of the word of the Lord or the burden of the word of the Lord, and that phrase never occurs in the first eight chapters. Never occurs. Chapters 9 through 14 are much more like Malachi than they are Zechariah. Now, Malachi is the book that follows Zechariah. In fact, if you look at, at, at Malachi, rather, uh, Zechariah 9 through 11, that's one section, 12 through 14 is the second section. And then if you go to Malachi 1 through 4 of the next book, they form a, a, a structure, all three of them. And it's Malachi. So the ending of Zechariah really looks more like Malachi than it does the first part of Zechariah. Chapters 9 through 14, there are no visions. We had eight of them in chapters 1 through 8. No references to angels. In chapters 1 through 8, Zechariah's encountering angels and talking to them, and no angels in 9 through 14. In fact, in chapters 9 through 14, the name Zechariah never appears. The name Joshua the high priest never appears. We've been talking about him for weeks. Zerubbabel never appears. Darius, the Persian king, never appears. So the names are never mentioned. And we've been talking about them at length in the first portion. 
The phrase, on that day, talking about a future day to come, which we know to be the end of the world, occurs 18 times in chapters 9 through 14, doesn't occur at all in 1 through 8. So you can see a vast difference between the two. So the question is, a lot of people have asked, did Zechariah write 9 through 14? Was he still alive 150 years later? If so, he was an old dude. So did he write it? And was it written by maybe one of his disciples or successors? Was he even still alive? Who wrote it? Well, here are some theories. A German by the name of William Newcomb back in 1785 said that he thinks, or he thought, he's not around anymore, but he thought chapters 9, 10, and 11 were written before the northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C., and chapters 12, 13, and 14 were written before the southern kingdom fell in 586. Wow, that would be odd if it was. Another theologian by the name of Benedict Fluge says, actually, 9 through 14, you see nine different time periods represented over 150 years. J.G. Icorn, another theologian, said, no, no, this was 9 through 14 was written very late, all the way almost to the time of Jesus. R.K. Harrison, who I think is a, one of the, the best scholars, says, no, Zechariah wrote it. God just gave him a vision of what would happen in the future, and he wrote it at the same time. Very possible. So, that's my theory, is that Zechariah wrote it because that's who the Bible tells us wrote the entire book. And so, I believe God gave him a vision of what would happen 150 years later and then all the way to the end of the world. And in that vision God gave him then, 520 B.C., he was writing about the future. And God gave him insight. So, I believe that's what happened. So, with that, let's look at chapters 9 through 14. Now, one more thing before we get to chapter 1. 9 through 14, those chapters are divided into two sections. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And those two sections are vastly different. Let me explain. They're almost even, 9, 10, and 11 has 46 verses, 12, 13, 14 has 44 verses. 9, 10, and 11 talks about the nations of Israel, being, the nations around Israel being attacked. 12 through 14 talks about Jerusalem being attacked. 9, 10, and 11 talk about the exiles of the Jews returning. 12, 13, and 14 never mention the exiles. 9, 10, and 11 has a very strong shepherd motif. The Messiah is going to be a shepherd. Jesus was. 13, 14, 15 never mentions a shepherd. 9, 10, and 11 says Israel will not be cleansed during this time period. 12, 13, 14 talks about the cleansing of Israel. Weeping and cleansing and holiness will return. 9, 10, and 11 talks about a king will appear who is majestic and powerful and authoritative. And 12, 13, 14 says, a king will appear and you will pierce him through and kill him and he will be a slain shepherd. 9, 10, 11, so the nations are defeated around Israel. And 12, 13, 14 says the nations are defeated but they're going to be converted and trust Jesus. 
So you have 9 through 14 that's different, and within that you have 9, 10, 11, and 12, 13, 14 that's different. So two different sections, and you'll see the difference as we go through. So that's just the introduction to our final section of the book. Now let's look, letter B on your outline, judgment on Israel's enemies, the first seven verses. This is really interesting, really fascinating. I'll explain how history fulfilled exactly what was prophesied here. Verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. So, it begins, chapter 9 does, by saying, nations around Israel, God has a beef with you. And the beef is this, you have oppressed God's people long enough. Judgment's coming upon you. So, we're going to see who, what nations were around Israel that were judged. The word uh, is interesting. The word oracle is, is interesting. It's the word Massah. It's not in, it's not in uh, the Bible that much, but it literally means burden or a heavy pronouncement. Something is heavy on God's heart. What would be heavy on God's heart? It's the nations around Israel and how they treated them. And he said, I have an eye on you. In other words, everything you've done to my people has not escaped my eye. So, folks, if that was true in that day, is it true today? Yes. God notices what happens to Israel even today. God notices what nations line up or align with Israel and those that are against Israel. What leaders are aligned with Israel and what leaders are not aligned with God notices those things. He has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Now here's my question. As I read this in verse 1, God has an eye on all the tribes of Israel. They're scattered. Whenever Zechariah wrote this, they're everywhere. Some are in Israel, they came back, some are still in Babylon, most of them are there. Some are still in Assyria, some are in Egypt, some are in Ammon, some are in Moab, some are in Edom. Some even sneaked away and stayed in Bethel. They're everywhere. They're scattered in all the nations. And God says, I have my eye on the tribes of Israel. So in other words, wherever they were, God never, never stopped watching over them. He never left them. They didn't have to physically be there. His eye was still on them. Now, look at the places that are mentioned. The Lord is against the Hadrach and Damascus in verse 2, and all on, on Hamath also which borders on it. Where is Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath? It is in Syria. So, Syria is just to the northeast of Israel. Now, as you look at the names mentioned, you're going to see a lot of names mentioned, verses 1 through 7. If you were to look on a map, they line up almost identical with north to south. If you go to the very top of the map, you're going to see Hadrach and Damascus and Hamath, which are in Syria. You're going to see Tyre and Sidon. 
Then you're going to see the five cities of Philistia. Then you're going to see Israel, and you're on your way to Egypt. So if you look at a map, everything that's mentioned, all these cities are almost line up perfectly with a map. Here's something else. If you go to the year 330 B.C., we're in 520 here, but 150 years later, and Alexander the Great starts to make his march from the north to the south, it is identical to chapter 9. If you look at a history book and you say, he started in Syria, he went through Hadrach and Damascus and Hamath, and then he went to Tyre and Sidon, then he went to the cities of Philistia, and then he stopped in Jerusalem, and then he went on to the south. It is identical. It is tracing Alexander the Great's path exactly. So, this passage was fulfilled in Alexander the Great. Now, think about the map of Israel. You've got Israel here. To the very far north, you have, you have Syria over here. You have Tyre and Sidon over here. You go down the seacoast, you've got Philistia here. You've got Israel here. You've got Egypt back there. So, if you look at it, this was, again, the exact route of Alexander the Great. Now, now listen to Alexander the Great's story. Some of you may remember it from history because it's fascinating how it lines up to chapter 9. Alexander the Great, as you know, became the leader of Greece, wanted to conquer the world. It was his goal. Well, he has a small army. If you want to conquer the world, where do you start? By attacking the world's greatest power. If you can beat them, then you're the world's greatest power. So, he attacked Persia. Remember, Persia took over all of, all of God's people. They're in Babylon, but Persia's in control. So, Persia and King Darius is in control. So, he attacked Persia, and he was outnumbered 10 to 1. And in three colossal battles that lasted from 334 to 331 B.C., he beat them. Alexander the Great was a, was a brilliant military tactician. Outnumbered 10 to 1, over three battles, he beat them. So he has now conquered the world's greatest power, which is Persia. So he heads south to conquer Egypt, which is the second greatest power. And all along the way, he captures peoples. Where would he go? Well, after you leave Persia, where's the next the first stop? Syria. That's Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath. And it only took him 12 years to get from the top Persia all the way down to India. 10,000 miles he conquered. And you know his story. After the last conquering, he cried because there were no more kingdoms to be conquered. It only took him 12 years. So he conquered Persia, went to Syria, went to Tyre and Sidon, went to Philistia, on his way to Egypt. But when he came to Jerusalem, history books record he did not capture them. Why not? It's the only nation he didn't capture was Israel. Why not? I'll tell you in a moment when we get there in the passage. So, the Lord has his eye on all the tribes of Israel and all of mankind. Nothing escapes the Lord's eye. Now, after Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath, look at verse 2. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise... 
Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up like sil silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Stop there for a moment. What happened historically? Let me tell you the story. Tyre and Sidon were very arrogant because they thought they could never be defeated. They thought they literally were unconquerable. So they got pretty proud. And it was a, a little island. It was, today it's known as Lebanon. Uh, but there was a little island off the coast of what we know of Lebanon today called Tyre. And it was very wealthy. Ships would stop there and do commercial business. And so Tyre was unconquerable, they thought, and very, very wealthy. And they knew it. So those residents of Tyre, they, you talk about cocky, arrogant, they were. They're rich, you can't do anything about it, and nobody can beat us. We are literally unconquerable. Now what happened, Tyre, we used to be on the seacoast where Lebanon is today. The city fell. It was an insignificant city, uh, easily taken, was defeated time after time. So the last time they were defeated, they thought, enough of this. We're going to move the island. So they rebuilt the new city of Tyre half a mile away, a little island half a mile off the coast. They put a wall around it 150 feet high where you couldn't conquer it. By the time you sailed up and tried to conquer it, they shot from the top and they, they defeated you. And no one could ever conquer the new Tyre. It looked unconquerable. It was an island. Peoples and kings tried to conquer them and they couldn't do it. The two greatest powers at the time, Assyria and Babylon, you know they, they both invaded Israel, they tried to conquer it and couldn't. Assyria tried, excuse me, for five years and quit. They couldn't take it. Babylon tried for 13 years and couldn't conquer it. And they quit. So if the world's two greatest powers don't invade you, you're kicked back enjoying life. And all the, the commercial ships, they dock there, and you just keep getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And he says here, you have heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets, and you built yourself a rampart, which meant a wall. You can't, you can't capture it. But he says, God says, I will strip you of your possession, strike down your power, and you'll be burned. Well, who on earth is going to do that? Assyria couldn't. Babylon couldn't. So along comes Alexander the Great. He's captured Syria. Tyre and Sidon's next. So he sails out to the island, and he asks permission to worship their god, Melkart. They worship the god of Melkart on Tyre. And they go, aha, I know what you're doing. You're just trying to gain access to our city. We're not going to let you do it. You want to worship our God, go back to the old Tyre, which is on the seacoast, and worship him there. We're not granting you access to our city. And he goes, well, I'm declaring war on you then. And they said, fine, good luck. Nobody else has taken us. But Alexander the Great did something interesting. 
he went back to the old Tyre and he took the ruins of the old city and began to build a causeway half a mile out to the island so he could bring his troops in there. Well, the first portion was pretty easy. It was shallow and had a muddy bottom. Uh, and so it's pretty easy. But as it got closer to the island and the wall around, it dropped about 18 feet. And the bottom was rocky and it was much harder to build. And so he was using all the rubble from previous uh, destructions and building the causeway out there. So he got close, but he was having now work now at a snail's pace. And they were now at the top watching him and his army get closer. And they started firing upon his army. The residents of Tyre did, but he just kept going. And finally, he breached the island. He got there, his troops breached one of the walls, got in. And in only seven months, he defeated the island. And when he finished, he burned it, set it afire. And what you're seeing is verses 2, 3, and 4 of Zechariah 9 in your history books being fulfilled. Now that you know the story, let me read it again. Tyre, verse 2, Tyre and Sidon, though you are very wise, sarcastic, You've built yourself a rampart, a wall. You've heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her. Doesn't say Alexander. God was using Alexander. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. And she shall be devoured by fire. That is exactly what happened. So now Alexander the Great has captured Persia and Syria and Tyre and Sidon. And next on the map is Philistia, Phoenicia, the five cities of the Philistines. They saw what happened and heard Alexander has conquered all of these. And they are scared. Read with me verses 5 through 7. Ashkelon shall see it. Ashkelon was actually, by the way, the five cities of, of, of Philistia. Um, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and Gath. So you'll see those coming up. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also because its hopes are confounded. The kings shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away blood from its mouth. Its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Let me explain all that. Let me give you a little history about Philistia. If you go to Israel today, whenever you land, and we take a group and we land, we're landing in the land of the Philistines. You remember in the Old Testament, the land of the Philistines, just southeast of Israel. They had five major cities, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and Gath. By the time Alexander the Great goes through Gath is no more. And we know that because 2 Kings 12, 17 tells us. 
By the way, Gath was destroyed uh, in, uh, by uh, uh, King Haziel of the, of the Arameans of Damascus. So the reason it's not mentioned in here is because it's already ceased to be a city. We're told that, 2 Kings 12, 17. By the way, just as a side note, what's interesting is archaeological evidence back in 2021 found the ancient city of Gath, did excavations, and they found a fortified wall around it that had been breached, a 30-foot section that had been breached exactly like 2 Kings 12 tells us. I love how archaeology continues to confirm what the Bible said for years, but it's really cool whenever it happens. So they found it exactly back in 2021, uh, two years ago, exactly like described in 2 Kings 12. So you have these five cities of, of, of Philistia. You remember Gath was where Goliath was from. And so Philistia had constantly been a thorn in the side of the Israelites. So now God is saying that you are next on Alexander the Great's pilgrimage through here. He's going to destroy every one of your cities. You're going to be scared to death. He's going to get there, but guess what? He's going to capture your city. And so Alexander the Great headed toward the five cities of Philistia, conquered them exactly as verses 5 through 7 describe it. And God said that he would destroy these cities in chapter 9 and populate them with a mixed group of citizens so that Philistia would cease to exist. Today, when you land in Israel, you land in Tel Aviv, the modern city of Tel Aviv is in the ancient cities of Philistia. And today there is no Philistia. There are no Philistines. It's all incorporated. Tel Aviv has people literally from cosmopolitan city from all over the world, so it's fulfilled. And it's now just a part of Israel. Ashdod. In fact, you land, you get, you're taking the bus from the airport to our hotel, and you see signs on the road signs that say Ashkelon. Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, uh, Gath, uh, you'll still see the road signs that list all five of the ancient cities, but they're just a part of Israel. They're not, not their own country anymore. So God's saying, I will, I will cut off your pride, Philistia, and mix your peoples among the other peoples around you. And that is exactly what's happened. So the first night we stay there, we stay in in the land of Philistia, ancient land of Philistia. So he came in and like the Jebusites, it says in verse 7, that he will make Ekron like the Jebusites. Stop for a moment. Do you remember the Jebusites? Those were the residents of Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. So King David came in and defeated King Jebus of the Jebusites. And whenever he defeated them, he changed the name to Jerusalem, the city of peace. So Jerusalem used to be Jebus and the Jebusites. And so rather than killing all the Jebusites, David just let them live in the holy city. So that's what's saying is going to happen here. Ekron, all your citizens are going to be absorbed and your land is going to cease to exist and that is exactly what's happened. And I'll notice something else, verse 7, it's interesting. Notice he says, verse 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And it too shall be a remnant for our God. What's he talking about? The Philistines worshipped pagan gods. 
And one of the things they did is they worshiped pagan gods. Well, they, they would drink blood and eat flesh. By the way, the early Christians were accused of that too. They were accused of being cannibals by critics of early Christianity in the book of Acts because the Lord's Supper. It was symbolic, but they thought, all oh, those Christians are eating blood and drinking blood and eating flesh. Well, the Philistines actually did that. And God saw it as an abomination. So, he said, that's a part of your pagan rit uh, rituals as worship. In fact, Isaiah 64 and 66 both describe the pagan uh, rituals of, of the Philistines. And so, he's saying, I'm going to take those out of your mouth. Now, remember, the Israelites, they didn't drink. They didn't eat flesh and drink blood. That was unclean. It was forbidden. So, he says, I'm going to make you Philistines like my people that don't drink blood and eat flesh. And I'm going to take it out of your mouth. And you're not going to get to exist anymore. You're going to become a part of my people. And, of course, it's exactly what happened. Now, let's go to the last portion, the last verse, verse 8, letter C on your outline. God spares Jerusalem. Verse 8, then I will encamp at my house, God says, as a guard. That's Jerusalem. So that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my eyes. Now let's stop here for a moment. Alexander the Great, Persia, Syria, Tyre and Sidon, captured Philistia. Who's next? Jerusalem. But rather than saying he will capture them, God says, I'm going to spare them. I'm going to encamp around my house. And nobody's going to march to and fro. Because I'm watching. And no oppressor will protect my people. So what happened? Why did Alexander the Great not capture Israel? He skipped over them. And went to Egypt and captured them. So if you read through your history books, you'll find out what happened. It's fascinating. Here's the story of what happened. Now, this is recorded in uh, two ancient historians. Josephus was one of them in his book called Antiquities of the Jews. This is in the book of Antiquities. He describes what happened. Another historian did as well. Alexander captured the Philistines, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to get them next. The Jews heard about it. They heard what happened in Persia. They heard what happened in Syria. They heard what happened in Tyre and Philistia. And they know they're next. And so the high priest at the time called all the people together and said, Look, we need to pray. Alexander the Great's on his way. We need to pray. So everybody prayed. And he feels like God revealed to him a strategy. So the high priest says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get my high priest's garb on, dressed in purple. I want all of you to dress in white, white robes, and all be rank and file behind me. And we're going to march out of the city when Alexander's on his way, and we're going to meet him outside of Jerusalem. And we're going to approach him and ask him to spare our city. Okay, here goes. I mean, Alexander the Great was ruthless. So, he's on his way, and they're marching out in rank and file. All, in, all he sees is white and the purple. 
purple going before, all in white, rank and file, all marching out the citizens of Jerusalem to meet Alexander the Great. They get there and they meet him and Alexander the Great dismounts off of his horse and bows down before the Jewish high priest. And everybody's shocked because Josephus records Alexander bowed to nobody. And he lets you know he didn't. He got down on his knees and bowed to the high priest. And the high priest asked his commander, what's he doing? And the commander said, Alexander had a dream last night. That as he marched into Jerusalem, there would be those marching out dressed in white. And he was told in the dream, do not attack. This is the God of Israel. Do not attack. And he believed it. And he believed that if he would spare this city, that the God of Israel, as a good omen, he said, to him would give him future battles to win. So that's what he told the high priest. The high priest says, come on in and let's have supper together. So they ate, had dinner together. He stayed the night in Jerusalem, according to the history books of Josephus. Stayed the night, treated Israel kindly, peacefully incorporated them into his kingdom, and made his way on down to Egypt. The Jews were grateful. In fact, the Jews were so grateful, they started naming their firstborns. Alexander. And by the way, that practice continues today. Today, a lot of Jews are named Alexander. And the reason is goes back to Zechariah chapter 9. Let me read it again. I will encamp, God says, at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my eyes. Did you notice something? Did you notice that God began this passage and ended this passage by saying, I'm watching. He begins at verse 1, my eye is on all the tribes of Israel, and he ends it by saying, for now I see with my eyes. God is watching. And God is certain to do everything he said. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. So even though it looks like God is not watching and God's unconcerned and God's not caring about you, God has his eye on you and everything that's happening. He doesn't miss a thing. God himself will vindicate his people. It's exactly what he did. He used Alexander the Great all the way through and to fulfill exactly verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9. Next Wednesday night, we'll pick up with chapter 9. It continues to get more interesting. So it's a fascinating passage to see how God unfolded. We'll pick up there next week. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email me or see me afterwards. We'll close. God, thank you tonight that you teach us so much through this passage. God, you, you teach us that although it looks like your people are being oppressed and other people are gloating over them, God, you tell us that in the end... Your people are the ones who are victorious. And I thank you that in Jesus Christ, we are victors even now. God, thank you that your eyes are set upon your people and set upon us. May you continue to direct our paths as you promised you would. We love you and we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. 
Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.